Welcome to the Healthy Doctor Podcast, where we host conversations about physician well-being. I'm Dr. Steve Sartori, Director of the Center for Well-Being at the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Conflict is part of the human experience and can steal our energy and contribute to burnout. It is one of the leading challenges reported by cross-cultural missionaries and can compromise ministry effectiveness. My guest on this episode is Dr. Bob Watson, a psychologist who helps cross-cultural missionaries recover from burnout, deal with conflict. He has a lot of expertise to bring to us today. Bob holds a master's degree in clinical psychology from Wheaton College and a doctorate from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. He is licensed as a clinical psychologist in the state of Michigan. Bob served in youth and church ministry for a year in Micronesia after college, which sparked his interest in cross-cultural missions. He has worked as a mental health professional in a faith-based organization, a professor training Christian psychologists and counselors, and an organizational consultant developing leaders and teams. He has also worked closely with indigenous churches on many short-term missions. Bob's vocational journey prepared him for his current role of clinical director at Alongside, an organization that offers intensive counseling programs for individuals and families that work in ministry cross-culturally and domestically. He considers himself privileged to play a part in healing the noble wounds of those in ministry. Let's glean some wisdom by listening to what Bob has to share. Well, welcome, Bob, to this episode of the Healthy Doctor podcast. Thank you, Steve. I'm really excited to be with you. You know, I've I've heard about you through other friends, mutual friends of ours, and uh, and I know that some of your work has been around the theme of conflict and conflict resolution, helping missionaries, especially as they deal with the inevitable conflicts they will face and do face. So I'm uh, curious about how you got interested in engaging in this kind of work. Well, uh, I, professionally, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so conflict is kind of the waters that uh, psychologists swim in, both in terms of the internal conflicts that all of us have as human beings, interpersonal conflicts, working with couples around couple and marital issues, and systemic and organizational conflicts. But, uh, but that's really the easy answer, Steve. The, the harder and more honest answer is um, when I look backward in my, my own history early in life and even in ministry situations and work situations, I've been exposed, like probably all of us to some extent, to unresolved and unhealthy conflicts. And that really put me, I think, on a quest to find ways to address and even even find some degree of value in conflict. And that includes in the church and into my professional life. I have uh, worked with people in ministry extensively throughout my career and now more recently working in an intensive program for people who are missionaries and a subset of that is people who are medical missionaries. So what undergirds all this stuff? Why in the world do we have conflict? I mean, isn't life supposed to be just wonderful and you walk with Jesus and there's no conflict? What's going on? That's a great question. And I, I've thought about it, of course, wearing my psychologist hat, but I've also thought about it as a Christian and uh, as a, a so somewhat sophisticated lay theologian, if I could say it that way, and wondered about conflict from those different perspectives. And of course, there, there are kind of multiple causes of conflict. 
And conflict typically comes about because of incompatible needs or desires or values or priorities or solutions to problems that we come up with. But as I thought about it and reflected on it, I want to suggest something that may be a little bit counterintuitive, and that is that um, conflict has a, a purpose. And the purpose of conflict is to solve problems. Wow. Can you unpack that a little bit more? One of the people whose work I respect is uh, an organizational consultant named Patrick Lencioni. And uh, he wrote a, a book a number of years ago that I really like called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And he really offers a powerful rationale for why doing conflict well is essential to the well-functioning of teams. And it goes something like this. In a work team or in, a, in an intimate relationship or among a group of friends or within a church, teams can only disagree with each other if there's a foundation of trust. And a team, let's kind of stay with that, a team can only make good decisions when they have the ability to disagree. So trust is the foundation. And when we trust each other, you and I can disagree with each other. We can have our own points of view and we can put them out there. And that is the precondition, I believe. I believe Lencioni's right. That's the precondition for making good decisions is that we put all the perspectives out there and can examine them together. And if we make a good decision together, then that enables us as a team to commit to solutions and to hold each other accountable to them. And then committing to solutions together enables the team to focus on getting the job done. So my point is that conflict is really normal and inevitable as a part of life in our relationships. And the, the real question is whether we'll make good use of our conflict or whether the conflict will worsen the situation, which, of course, is often the case. Yeah, I'm familiar with Lencioni's work, and I agree with you wholeheartedly that uh, we need to create an environment of trust whereby the best ideas, even conflicting ideas, get put in the pot and the best can bubble up and up to the top and then we can commit to them. And I, I think you're absolutely right in looking at conflict as an opportunity that's purposeful. That kind of flips the switch on how we look at conflict. Why run away from it when we really could run toward it? Exactly. Yeah, not something that people think about. Most people want to run away from conflict and it takes this trust. And so... You, you talk about ways that people deal with conflict in unhealthy ways. What, what are we prone to do that makes it worse? Well, there's probably a, a number of different things that we do uh, that make it worse. So uh, at a long, at a, alongside where I work, when we talk about conflict, we use a, as a metaphor forest fires. And so like conflict, there can be forest fires that serve a good function for the forest. And there can be forest fires that can be devastating to the forest. And that typically has to do with a number of factors that either make the forest fire at a level of intensity that is destructive or at a level of intensity that it's actually productive in terms of clearing out debris, activating uh, seeds to germinate, et cetera. So, uh, so one of the things that happens that worsens conflict is if we allow the intensity of the conflict to become so high that it destroys unity or we lose productive cooperation or we actually really wound each other deeply. And, and I would say the third one, once, once um, a conflict situation moves to that level in which we have wounded each other deeply, that becomes a real challenge to come back and find each other and reconnect. 
Sounds important to be preventive in our approach so that we don't get to that wounded deeply stage of conflict. Exactly. How would you be aware that you might be infringing upon that forest fire that's destructive? How would you become aware of that? I think that there's a there's a number of things that contribute to the kind of awareness that would prevent the kind of catastrophic damage that, that we're talking about. I wanted to spend a, a minute talking a little bit about ways that people respond to conflict. And this, this goes to your question of awareness. So if I can kind of come in the back door and respond to that, Steve. Yeah, please do. In, in my way of thinking about it and people who, who reflect deeply on this question of managing conflict, there are really two dimensions to consider in conflict. And one is that when we're in a situation where we're trying to navigate conflict, there are moments in which we advocate. We're in advocacy mode. In other words, we're asserting our point of view, our feelings, our perspective, our values, our solutions, our positions. And then in, in uh, other moments where we shift from advocacy mode to inquiry mode, in which we become curious about the views and feelings and perspectives and values, solutions of, of others. And so um, this, is, this is kind of what this might look like in a work setting. So when I'm in advocacy mode, I might say things to you like, here's my perspective, Steve, on the issue. Let me tell you where I'm at. Or I might say, I think this is what the data shows in the situation. Or I might even very directly say, I think we need to, to apply this solution. And we need to get started now because, and then fill in the blank. When I'm in inquiry mode, my focus has shifted from advocating my point of view to inquiring into your point of view. And so I might ask you questions like, well, what do you think? Or what led you to that conclusion? Or how would you approach the issue? Or what have you heard from our patients? Or when, when would you address the issue in terms of timing? And so with those two kind of fundamental dimensions in mind, we can think of the advocacy dimension as related to assertiveness and think of that as an axis, if I could say it like that. And we can think of the inquiry dimension as related to cooperativeness. And we could think of that as another axis. So now we're comparing two axes to each other, and we have a matrix to think about different ways that people respond to conflict in helpful and in unhelpful ways. So let me see if I can paint this a little bit, if that's okay. Please. And so if we think about the assertiveness axis from unassertive to assertive, and we think of the cooperative axis from uncooperative and cooperative, People who research these things have discovered that there are five different ways, five different conflict handling modes that people typically shift into in a conflict situation. The first conflict handling mode would be one in which we have a, a person who is highly assertive and also highly cooperative. And we would call that conflict handling mode or approach a collaborating approach. And the, the method of that approach would be to expand the possible range of options, and the goal would be to find a win-win situation. So if you and I are working together, and, uh, and we, we both want to find a way that our ideas, that we can stay connected with each other, and our ideas could work together in such a way that we both win. Another approach, which is called the avoiding approach, is one in which assertiveness is relatively low, 
and cooperation is relatively low. So now we're in the, the lower left-hand corner of the, of the matrix. And so that approach is called the avoiding approach. And the method of the, the person who is using the avoiding conflict handling mode is to maintain neutrality by withdrawing. So there are some situations in which that's the best strategy in a conflict situation. Perhaps things have become too hot. Perhaps there's a time that we need to withdraw so that cooler heads can prevail and then come back to it. So the goal of avoiding is to delay. And then another mode would be a conflict handling mode in which the person is highly assertive, but they are relatively lower on the cooperativeness dimension. So we would call that mode a competing mode. And when one is in a competing mode, they're operating out of a zero-sum orientation. It's a win-or-lose situation, and their aim is to win. And there can be a dimension of exerting power, sometimes even a power struggle. The, the goal of the competing approach is to win. And then uh, the, the last two, if one is relatively low in assertiveness and highly cooperative, their conflict handling mode would be called accommodating. And when one is in an accommodating mode, we're maintaining harmony by yielding or acceding to the other person. And so the goal is to yield. And then finally, right smack in the middle of the matrix, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, would be a compromising mode in which a person would be somewhat cooperative and somewhat assertive. The method would be to seek minimal acceptance by all to preserve relationship. Essentially, the goal would be to find middle ground. So, so that's kind of a high-level way of thinking about all these different human modes that we shift into to navigate conflict situations. In our culture, we tend to, to think in matrix frameworks like this that the best is up and right, so that we might think that the collaborating mode, which is highly assertive and highly cooperative, might be the gold standard. But actually, in reality, uh, it doesn't quite work that way. Each of these five conflict handling modes position us to facilitate conflict resolution that really depending on the situation or the context. So trying to figure out which mode do I shift into is the wise way to navigate a conflict situation. And of course, what happens is that all of us have a kind of a default or maybe a home base mode, and it becomes problematic if we overuse it, apply it to every situation. And that in a team situation oftentimes creates unwittingly people backing each other into corners or perhaps not bringing out their point of view when the team desperately needs their point of view. Well, as you were describing these things, I had a couple of things that came to my mind. One was I was wondering where you were going to come up with the fifth one because I only saw four quadrants. And then you <laughs> then you hit the middle of the bullseye with that uh, circle in the middle, the compromiser. And then also you've already addressed what was coming to my mind too, this home base, this natural style or what we revert to naturally. And I can only imagine that under pressure or under stress, it makes it even more difficult to shift from our natural mode to something that would better assist in that particular conflict situation. So then I'm thinking, okay, how do I become aware of that? How do I shift my conflict style to fit the nature of the challenge before me? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you've underscored both the wise process, which is to make something that oftentimes happens kind of automatically in us to make it, make, bring it up into our awareness. 
And then the real challenge is, how do I slip into something that maybe isn't quite as comfortable for me in a stressful situation? The time to work on that, of course, is not in the stressful (laughs) conflict situation. It's to be reflective and to work purposefully on it ahead of time, to understand what these things are and to, to cultivate, to practice in some way, the other three or four conflict handling modes. So as a psychologist, I mean, do you see the capacity within people to actually make these shifts into a different conflict mode? Yes, yes. It's probably not possible to shed our home base because that there's there's good reasons why we have a home base or oftentimes what happens is that we have one and if that that doesn't work particularly well, we shift to a second one and if that doesn't work particularly well, we shift to a third one. But there are some ways for us to learn how to round out, in a sense, our conflict handling modes. So one of the um, tools that I really like is an assessment tool called the uh, Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument, which is a, a proprietary tool, but it gives a really nice narrative, interpretive report with ideas about how to work on on these things. Sounds like that could be helpful because, uh, like many things, to uh facilitate change in ourselves, we need some help from other people. We've got to have others that come alongside us and observe us and give us feedback and help us with instruction and help us to become aware of things that often are so natural, we just aren't even aware of it. That's a great point, Stephen. Oftentimes in in really healthy, high-functioning teams, that's exactly what happens is that people commit to helping each other grow. And one of the things that um, I found fascinating is to use the instrument, the tool that I just mentioned, the TKI, Thomas Kilman instrument, and to map onto this matrix that we've been talking about where everyone on the team lands so that we can see the makeup of the team by preferred or home base conflict handling modes and then make predictions about what's going to happen to us as a team. I think it underscores the importance of some diversity on your team because I'm sitting here imagining what if I have a team of computers? What if I have a team of people who have to win? For them to shift makes it difficult. You need some diversity on that team, it sounds like. Absolutely. Diversity is uh, is critical and helping each other, as you pointed out earlier, to become flexible in terms of the modes that we use to navigate conflict together and disagreement together. So another another common configuration in ministry teams and uh, medical missions teams as well is that there'll be an over-representation of people who fall on the cooperative axis, so people who tend to be more avoiding and more accommodating. And then you'll have a handful of people that are in the competing, highly assertive and less cooperative. And you can, you can imagine, Steve, the team dynamic that that creates. You have a few people who um, have very strong points of view and advocate for them strongly, and other people whose default setting unless the team works to overcome this, their default setting is to be quiet and to try to accommodate the strongest voices. Yeah, I can imagine what happens there and people get walked over and things happen and then there's just this bitterness and regret and all kinds of things that I'm sure can well up when that happens. Exactly. Yeah, of course, Being, I come from a... uh, a medical background as well as a coaching background. And of course, one of the things we do in team coaching is that in real time, you know, you can even have an observer in the room 
to begin to point out and reflect on the different kinds of conflict styles, what you're observing, where people are operating from. Are they operating in their home base? Are they beginning to shift? Uh, How are people responding? What are others noticing? What are others observing? It actually can be kind of fun if someone's really open to growing. That's exactly right. I've had that experience as well. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I know that conflict, which is purposeful and managed well and actually bubbles up into all kinds of wonderful outcomes potentially, we don't want to lose that harvest potential. So when you, uh, you, you're involved at alongside in med retreats and you work with medical missionaries as well as other missionaries, what would someone expect if they were attending a med retreat? How would conflict get addressed there? What would you do? So as you, as you well know, conflict in a medical, in a domestic medical context is a, a reality and conflict not managed well is a reality. When you add a cross-cultural dimension to it, it really, for some individuals and teams, it really amplifies that significantly. And so at the med retreat that you mentioned is a, a 10-day counseling program in a retreat setting. We address the the issue of conflict uh, as a kind of a thread that runs through all the different aspects of our program. So there are plenary seminars that offer perspective and information and practical tools on the things that folks in medical missions deal with continuously, like burnout and traumatic stress and moral injury and spiritual dryness and conflict and toxic work environments, et cetera. So we've got content in the seminars. We've got a small group experience where we offer a safe space for people to debrief their experiences. And then there's individual, or if they happen to come with their partner, a couple counseling to talk about their specific concerns. And so I I would say it this way, Steve, that this thread of conflict runs through all three of those aspects of the program and is addressed at a, a, you know, kind of a knowledge base and tool perspective. It's addressed from the standpoint of being in a small group and hearing each other's stories and the way that we have navigated well or not well conflict. And then it's addressed in an individual counseling context where it gets quite personal uh, in terms of our our individual stories. Sounds like an opportunity to uh, dig deep and uh, really work on this at a very personal level. And, uh, From what I've witnessed in attending one of those as an observer, I've seen this at work, and it's a wonderful experience for those who will participate in it. Uh, Our time's coming to a close, Bob, but is there anything else you'd like to say before we close out? We didn't get a chance to talk about this, but I would encourage people to check out the principled negotiation model that began at the Harvard Law School as part of their negotiation project. And the key text for that is called Getting to Yes. And that's that's a, an accessible text. The second thing, Steve, that I, I want to say is in reflecting biblically about this whole issue of conflict, I've uh, been spending a lot of time over the last several years thinking about the way that Paul spent much of his time urging the, the small churches that he was nurturing toward uh, unity with each other. And specifically in the letter to the Philippians, he really pushes them to work on developing the root character virtue that leads to unity, and he identified that as humility. And so what I want to say is that that humility really undergirds our whole conversation today. So that that particular congregation apparently had a fair degree of unresolved and high-intensity 
conflict and Paul wants them to love each other wholeheartedly and work together with one mind and purpose. And then, of course, he draws their attention to the humility of Jesus. He says to them, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so in that little passage, Paul is drawing attention to something that you and I have talked about today thus far, and that is to be aware of one's own interests as well as the interests of others. And interests are those things which are as it were, underneath the waterline of the iceberg, the the part above the waterline are the positions that we take, what everyone can see, maybe what we fight for. The interests are everything that lie below the waterline, our values, our feelings, our stories, our perceptions, all of those things. So Paul is exhorting this group of people, in a sense, to really care about what our interests are, and our interests are not going to be the same, but that is a willingness to focus on one's own interests, to become aware of those, and to focus on the interests of others, serves the character formation of the character virtue of humility. Wow, such an important core ingredient. You talked about trust for teams, humility for individuals. Thank you for helping us close out with a passage of scripture that draws our attention to that. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. You've given me and many others much food for thought that will keep us thinking long past listening to you and our conversation. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And it's been a blessing to be a part of this, Steve. As I reflect on what Bob and I talked about, I Think about the foundation of trust required for successful and purposeful conflict. I also think about humility as the underpinnings for considering the interests of others, even as important or more important than our own. And I think I will remember the diagram he made in my mind, which we'll share with you on this uh, podcast uh, webpage as well, about the five modes of dealing with conflict. I'm not sure what hit home for you. But I encourage you to listen to this again, if need be, because there are so many pearls to be gleaned. If you are a healthcare professional serving cross-culturally, consider attending a med retreat at Alongside. The 10-day program includes plenary sessions, group sessions, and personal counseling if desired, along with plenty of opportunity to unplug, relax, and enjoy Alongside's beautiful campus near Kalamazoo, Michigan. The next med retreat is scheduled for July 19 through 29, And you can find more information by visiting the website alongsidecares.net slash medretreat, alongsidecares.net slash medretreat. At the CMDA Center for Wellbeing, we help healthcare professionals align with God, optimize well-being, and maximize influence. We offer professional coaching services that help you manage burnout, navigate change or transition, or grow your leadership skills. We also host coach training events that teach you how to help others without giving advice. For more information, visit cmda.org slash wellbeing or email wellbeing at cmda.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Healthy Doctor. If you like the podcast, please leave a good rating as it might encourage someone else to subscribe. Tune in again next month and until then, care for yourself as you care for others.
This podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate.